Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Yes, they are Let's look on you. Hey, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Welcome to the Space Boffins podcast from the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI in Silicon Valley, California. I'm Richard Hollingham. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and as well as contemplating alien life and Earth 2.0, we'll be hearing about a new mission to the moon, I'll be flying the space shuttle and Sue will be reporting from the latest European Space Agency tweet-up in Berlin. My name is not Hermann, even if I'm German. You are Henning and you're from Berlin. I'm from Berlin, yeah. I'm normally working in the motion picture industry, so I'm nothing to do with this industry, but I'm a space geek. Bit of German humour there. My guests are SETI senior astronomer Seth Shostak and science journalist and producer of SETI's excellent big picture science radio show, Molly Bentley. Now, Seth, your book is called uh, Confessions of an Alien Hunter. Uh, Have you got any particularly lurid confessions you'd like to share? Uh, You know, Richard, I think the most dramatic confession is that there are very few confessions in that book. But I, I think that the title refers mostly to my interaction with the public, which uh, likes to get in touch because they think they have had contact with aliens here on Earth usually, or they have seen them in the skies, or they have uh, suggestions about how we might find E.T. Is that a particularly American obsession? If you look at the polls that have been made about the belief in extraterrestrials, and in particular whether they're here visiting our planet, you'll find that it's roughly one-third of the population here in the United States thinks that's happening, and it's roughly one-third of the population of, say, the U.K. So I don't think it's all that different. Molly, are you part of that third, or were you when you came here? (laughs) Am I part of those who believe that we've been visited? Yes. (laughs) No, I'm not, and I wasn't when I came here. I would have been a bit of a skeptic as to the potential of life, intelligent life elsewhere in the universe when I arrived, because I, I think I did associate it with the idea that the intelligence had already arrived on our planet. But when you get into the science of it and when you understand the astrobiology behind the search, you understand it's a numbers game. And it depends on where you fall in those numbers, how you interpret those numbers. But if you understand the number of planets that are out there and the number of galaxies and so forth and how sophisticated our techniques are becoming in detecting those planets and so forth, you realize that the potential for intelligent life is certainly quite high. Seth, that's certainly true with the results from from Kepler. There are more potential planets out there. There are more planets out there. We know there are more planets out there. Uh, Is that reflected in renewed interest in the, the sort of work that you do? Well, I think it is. You know, when I was a kid, which after all is probably not within written history memory, but when I was a kid, you would go to the local planetarium, and they would tell you that it was quite possible that planets were extraordinarily rare. Obviously, we had eight or nine around the sun, but uh, there might not be any around the next uh, 100 stars out. 
Well, that's changed. And because of research that's been reported very recently, actually, within the last year, we now know that most stars have planets. So that means the number of planets in our galaxy is on the order of a trillion, right? So that's a million million. That's a very big number. Now, clearly, that's telling you, you know, there are a lot of habitats out there. Most of those planets aren't going to be very interesting. But if one in a million of them is, that's still a million interesting planets just in our galaxy. So I think in terms of the effect on the search for life, even intelligent life, I I think that that has somehow seeped down to the consciousness of the public. And they realize, look, with all those habitats, it would be very strange if there are no inhabitants. But more planets doesn't necessarily equate to more life, does it? No, it doesn't. It could be that life is very, very unusual. Uh, But on the other hand, it's also true that our planet, Earth, cooked up life very quickly. There was very little time between the moment when the Earth could support life and when it had life. Now, that might just have been a you know, very fortuitous, very lucky accident. And there's no way to rule that out unless you find a second example. But it is suggestive. It doesn't sound like life was a very difficult experiment for nature. Molly, as a journalist, do you sense that things have shifted from the, I don't know, the X-Files I want to believe to that I have evidence that there is life out there? I think so. And those are two different categories. One is fiction and the other is the work of scientists who are actually developing a lot of the ideas in astrobiology. Now, one is just what Seth was talking about with Kepler. So it's not only the discovery of extrasolar planets, but it's the discovery of the first planets that may be Earth-like, which is a smaller category. Um, But that's very exciting for people. It's no longer abstract, this idea that an Earth-like world where we know that intelligence, at least we can argue about that, has arisen might also be out there. And the other is the work on Mars, because we send rovers to Mars to investigate the possibility of water. We know that Mars had water on it once. And now the possibility of life, if not now, in the past. And I think all of that adds up for a case to be made that there could be life elsewhere in the universe. Okay, Seth, so there could be life elsewhere in the universe. I think most people accept there are more planets, there are more Earth-like planets, there could be life. It's quite a big step to go from that to intelligent life. What this place is essentially all about, what, what's on the sign outside. Yes, yes. Well, although keep in mind that the majority of the scientists here at the SETI Institute are actually looking for life that isn't uh, very intelligent, like microbes on Mars, for example. But you're quite right. And you've hit, Richard, on the, the most contentious aspect of this whole idea that we might find some cosmic company that's as clever as we are. That is, if I were to give you, well, a million planets with life, they're all... S- you know, simmering away there with biology, and you let them do that for billions of years, how many of them will ever cook up anything as clever as, you know, the average uh, resident of uh, Clapham Junction or something like that? Isn't the point that there are so many coincidences that got to to you and and me and to to Molly? Yes, but that doesn't say necessarily that we're, you know going to be rare in the sense that something that would be as clever as we are would be rare. You You could point to anything. You could point to barracudas and say, you know... Look at all the branches and the evolution of that particular kind of fish. But that doesn't mean you're not going to have fast-swimming predatory fish on other worlds. All it means is that, you know, to get to that particular case, all right, that was uh, that was very, if you will, contingent upon accident. Now, there's this phrase kicking around, this idea of Earth 2.0, uh, this quest to find another Earth. D- does that go beyond the search maybe for extraterrestrial intelligence? and more into the looking for somewhere else to live. We've screwed up this place, let's find somewhere else. Well, there may be people who think that that's what it's about. I, I, don't, I don't think that myself, because, 
Look, Earth 2.0, and we haven't found it yet. We found some worlds that, as Molly has said, are very tantalizing. They're the kind of worlds that could indeed support life. It's, it's unclear whether they could support the kind of complex life that, that uh, we think of when we think of intelligent beings. But, you know, that, that will surely come within a year and a half, two years. I'll bet you a cup of coffee we're going to find Earth 2.0. But it's likely to be... Really? So we're going to find somewhere like this? Either, either that or you get a cup of coffee, Richard. So right. it's not such a yeah, bad great, deal. Great. Yeah. Both ways. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but it's very likely that, that that planet is going to be at least tens of light years away and, and maybe even hundreds of light years away. So to think, okay, well, it's all right. I can, uh, you know, I can do whatever I want to the environment or I can, you know, whatever, uh, that we have another place to go. We have some sort of escape hatch that we can get to is, is wrong because we can't get to any of those worlds. But it would be nice to know they're out there. And, and maybe, uh, you know, 500 years from now or 1,000 years from now, maybe it becomes possible to send people to other planets. But it's not possible now and not, in my mind, in this century at all. I suppose the other side of that is that we're looking for a helping hand. We're, we're looking for them to come and help us. I don't know, the Vulcans coming from the, the stars. But I think that's in the first category, Richard, of the science fiction. I mean, as Seth has just po- pointed out, the travel distance and the time just make that uh, prohibitive. So I would say that the search for life elsewhere in the universe or search for a planet that is like Earth in some ways has underscored our own need for proper stewardship of this planet. Because even if there is another planet out there, we may never never have contact with it. The inhabitants may never make contact with us, at least in our lifetimes. And so this planet is all the more valuable and, and precious, to, and we should take care of it. So where does that leave SETI? I mean, you, you are putting money still into looking yes. for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yes, we are. We are. Think of it this way. If you find it, or you know it's there. It doesn't mean you're in communication with these guys. I mean, if they're a thousand light years away, and that's possible. If you're talking about intelligent beings, they, they could be hundreds, maybe a thousand light years away. So, you know, you pick up this signal and you say, well, let's, let's send something back to them. And you might or might not want to do that. But if you do, uh, then, you know, it'll take a thousand years for that signal to get there and then another thousand years if they deign to reply. So that's very tedious conversation. So this is not about conversation. And I don't think anybody in SETI thinks it is. So you're looking at answering a fundamental question. Are they out there, but not necessarily communicating with them, meeting them, exchanging information with That's them? That's right. This is the Space Boffins podcast with Space and Boffins from the SETI Institute in California. And I, I should mention that I'm not only in the States to visit SETI, but to talk to scientists at NASA Ames and the heroes of the hour, the Curiosity rover crew at JPL in Pasadena. You'll hear the results of those visits in the coming months on the podcast, and I'll be writing about them for BBC Future, a website that, frustratingly, you can only read outside the UK or through a proxy server. I have to whisper that. Also, I discovered the other day you can uh, look at it on the train from Scotland. Uh, It's hard to believe that just over six years ago, Twitter didn't exist. No one contemplated describing their life in 140 characters or less. No one knew that doing so could become so addictive. Tens of millions of people now use Twitter to communicate with friends, fans and clients. And space tweet-ups or tweeps, where followers get an inside view of space missions from real space scientists and astronauts, are hugely popular. The European Space Agency, ESA, held a tweet-up at the Berlin Air Show a few weeks ago. And space boffin Sue Nelson joined this unique 
international experience. My name is Henning. On Twitter, I'm Henning Krause. I'm from Berlin, and um, I'm uh, here because I love uh, the uh, space tweets and uh, being together with uh, all the crazy people that come here and talk about uh, social media and space. My name is Benedict. I'm from Oslo, Norway. I'm a hobby astronomer. Hi, I'm Shahira Nwila. I live in Bonn, but I'm originally from Tunisia. Well, I'm Suzanne Pietersen. I'm from the Netherlands. I'm a lawyer, but by night I'm a very enthusiastic space fan. <laughs> and that's why I'm here. My name is not Herman, even if I'm German. So you are Henning, and I'm you're from Berlin. I'm from Berlin, yeah. I'm normally working in the motion picture industry, so I'm nothing to do with this industry, but I'm a space geek. And boy, was there great stuff for space geeks. Lectures from experts on everything from Mars and Mercury to lunar landers and space planes, all in the space pavilion of the Berlin Air Show. It's pretty noisy out on the runway. There are loads of planes, loads of people and quite a few flybys. I'm also beneath the engines which are on just very very gently of the zero g airbus and i'm about to go up it with other members of the tweet up party with french astronaut jean-francois clairvoy what's the difference between doing zero g in the airbus the vomit comet and actually being in zero g in space if you let your body float in the middle of the cabin of the zero g airplane the only difference is the duration you can have only 22 seconds of zero-g continuously there. In space, it's continuous. But beside this, the feeling is exactly the same. You've been in space several times. Which would you say was your most memorable mission? The first one for the view of the Earth, the second one for the human relationship, and the third one for serving science. Let's go up the stairs here. There we go. Oh, sorry. Do you belong to the Yes, I am, sorry. Oops, got told off there because I forgot to put my overshoes on. Thank you very much. In we go. Oh, and it's got lovely, like, um, gym mats on the floor, padded floor, obviously so that when the zero-G stops, you don't have a hard landing. What you see here inside, uh, you see these white padded experiment area. Up to 14 different experiments can be here on board. And so it is a real good flying laboratory. Back to the conference hall now in the space pavilion where the space tweets are actually based. And who should I bump into having a cup of coffee but ESA astronaut Paolo Nespoli. You're quite a supporter of these sort of tweet-up events and you have a, a Twitter feed yourself. Was it something you ever imagined yourself being involved in? Before the space flight, I thought, uh, I'm not sure I want to really go into these things because I see people chained to their BlackBerry or, or iPad or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I was a little bit afraid uh, of this. So I started tweeting a couple of weeks before flying in space. I already there find it enjoyable, but it was really enjoyable in space. So I would see those tweets and somehow the next day I would try to, I don't know, somebody ask of a picture of, uh, of London and I would take a picture of London if I had the possibility and send it. But it was mainly me discovering uh, Earth with pictures, enjoying some of these things, finding some of these things very interesting and uh, sharing this with other friends uh, most of them I didn't know but I found uh, in return a lot of, of uh, interest, a lot of support a lot of envy <laughs> a lot of requests 
and this grew and this this sharing to me was really important I mean I was happy being there by myself and doing things but the fact that I could share this experience make me even more enjoying what I was doing feeling even more precious East astronaut Paolo Nespoli talking to Sue Nelson at ESA's tweet-up in Berlin. And you can find pictures of the tweet-up on our Facebook page, a little ironically, and you can, of course, follow us on Twitter. To find both, just search for Space Boffins. With me are SETI senior astronomer Seth Shostak and science journalist Molly Bentley. Now, I mean, Twitter and, and social media, they've transformed, haven't they, Seth? Our, our access to, to space and to space scientists and people doing this stuff? Well, I think that they have. I mean, they've, they've transformed formed our access to many, many things, including the personal habits of many people that I'd never met before. But but I have to say that I was stunned when I first heard, and it's been three or four years ago, from some woman from the Jet Propulsion Lab coming up and saying, well, we thought we'd try this thing where we would make our Mars rovers start tweeting what they were doing as if they were alive. And we at JPL, she said, didn't think very many people would find that interesting. Well, she was wrong. I mean, that's a, it's a huge thing now, isn't it, Molly? Particularly here in the United States, where traditional media really don't do much space stuff at all. I was trying to write a tweet in 140 characters here to I answer your question. I saw you away. That was very impressive. And as far as have I got... Have you done it? Well, I have. Twitter was not here six years ago. Now there is space for everyone to tweet. Is that 140 characters? I don't know, but it could be. <laughs> This is left to the listener to decide. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't really work, does it, so much on a podcast? <laughs> um, but, I mean, I suppose, Molly, we represent the, the old-school media, the traditional media, at least our, our original jobs, before we got into Twitter and Facebook and podcasting and, and all the rest of it. And this is making such a difference. You don't need us anymore. You don't need the journalist anymore? No, no bite your tongue. I, I disagree with that. <laughs> um, I think you still do need uh, journalists out there to report the facts and so forth, but you're absolutely right. Now, the information is there, and the access to disseminate the information um, is there for everybody through Facebook, through video, through Twitter accounts, and, and so forth. So everyone is a witness and, and reporting on, on the events. Uh, I mean, I followed the landing, like... A lot of people, and I was tweeting about the landing of the Curiosity rover, and I just felt part of it. Uh, and maybe it's just because of my age, so I missed the Apollo moon landings. My first space memories are of Skylab, which was pretty impressive, but not the moon landings. I almost felt for, for my generation that this is like landing on the moon, thanks to the social media, thanks to the engagement, thanks to the fact that I could watch it on my phone, that I could take part in this event. Can I ask you something? Have you ever seen Walter Cronkite narrate um, The Landing on the Moon? Where he wipes his eye? Yeah. Yeah. That's an extraordinary moment. Now, I wasn't old enough to watch that, but it's very moving, and it does feel like this event is happening to all of us. So I wonder if just our standards for what it means to participate have changed. I, I would like to say, as the only one in the uh, in the room who's old enough to <laughs> remember the moon landing... I have surely to say, not! <laughs> oh, surely so. And, and let me say that my birthday happens to be July 20th. And so the moon landing, as you may remember, Apollo 11 was July 20th, 1969, and I was having a birthday party. But nobody was paying any attention to the fact that I was a year older. They didn't care about that. They didn't even care about the cake or any of the other goodies being offered for them. They were glued to the black and white television set in the living room. And I agree with Molly that that was an experience that the world shared. Because back then, there weren't very many television channels. There certainly wasn't the Internet. And so 
the the one immediate access mode you had to what was going on in the moon for those television pictures, and the entire world was watching that. And I think that that was a kind of sharing of an event that that Twitter doesn't actually give you. I mean, it it, it gives you something like that, but it, it you would consider it a step backward, I think. Well, with the recent death of Neil Armstrong, there have been plenty of reminders over the past few weeks of that dramatic first landing on the moon. It's still heart-stopping to listen to, but I prefer this one, Apollo 17. And there it is, Houston, there's Camelot. Wow. Last target. I see it. We got them all. 42 degrees, 37 degrees, through 5,500, 38 degrees. Salinger, you go for landing. Gene Cernan and Jack Smith, the last men on the moon. Now, I interviewed uh, Gene Cernan a few years ago, and there were five words he said at the end of our conversation that really stuck with me. He said, when are we going back? Well, with the uh, Google Lunar X Prize and planned missions by India and China, the good news is that missions to the moon do finally seem to be back on the agenda. Next month, European science ministers will decide the budget for Europe's first lunar lander. The plan is to land an unmanned craft by the Shackleton Crater near the moon's south pole. This mission will be led by Germany, with many European scientists, including those in the UK, hoping to take part. Well, soon Nelson's been speaking to lunar lander systems engineer Richard Fasakali. She began by asking him why the moon's south pole. The south pole is a unique region on the lunar surface. Because of the moon's orbit and the fact that one face is always facing the Earth, it basically means that most of the surface experiences two weeks of illumination and then two weeks of darkness. And that's extremely difficult for a mission without the use of nuclear power sources to survive. But in the South Pole region, in fact, both polar regions, the topography means that there are basically local regions like hilltops, mountaintops and ridges where if you're up there, above the surrounding terrain, you'll basically see the sun moving just a few degrees above the horizon all around you. And that means that you can generate power for several months at a time rather than for two weeks. I would say the other reason is that in these regions, because of that fact of illumination, there are also areas where it's almost permanently dark. And that means they are kind of attractors for volatiles, which are substances like hydrogen, oxygen, potentially water, to basically accumulate. We want to be able to investigate those volatiles, find out where did they come from, when might they have arrived, but also they might be resources which we can use in the future. In terms of getting there, the mission will launch in 2018. Is it a straightforward unmanned mission as far as you're concerned or or is there different technology to what's been used before? It's primarily a technological mission. We're doing something new. The mission itself will not necessarily be straightforward but it's not exceptionally challenging compared to other missions. I think where the challenge will be will be in the testing of the technologies. These are new technologies so developing a way to be able to test them and gain confidence in them is something which will be new in the programme. Another challenge during the flight phase will be the autonomy of the mission. During the descent and landing phase, the lander needs to use its own onboard navigation and has a detection and avoidance, but it needs to do it on its own automatically. So that will be a challenging part of the mission, but it's something we need to design ahead of time. Now, when it gets to the moon, is it simply going to deploy instruments from where it is in situ, or are you going to use a rover as well? Our mission will stay where it is, and it will make measurements from the site where it lands. In fact, many of the objectives that we have to measure properties of the environment and the dust there and the volatiles, we don't necessarily need to move from that landing site. But 
there is a payload which the German Space Agency, who's a big backer of this mission, they want to put it on board this mission, which is a so-called mobile payload element, which is a small mobile device, it's a small rover, which would be deployed by the lunar lander and which can then move in the vicinity. What would happen, though, if your lander landed in a dark crater? How do you avoid that? Uh, we avoid it, first of all, with the navigation. So we choose a landing site which we are confident will not be in darkness. And then the lander will use its navigation to be able to find that point precisely. If there's been some mistake either by us on the ground and looking at the site or by the lander and doing the navigation, as it gets close to the landing site, it will take images of the local area and it will see whether we've sent it to an area which is dark. And if it is, it will on board realise that that's a problem and it will divert to a site which is illuminated. And how will this take on our current understanding of the Moon? In addition to the technological objective, there's a lot we don't understand about the properties of dust and the material we find at the surface. There's a lot we don't understand about the electromagnetic environment which is somewhat dynamic because the Earth is moving in and out of the Earth's uh, magnetic sphere. And it's that dynamic environment which will interact with the dust. And I think what we will learn compared to Apollo is how the environment can affect the surface systems so that we can design systems better in the future. Is this a precursor to Europe perhaps one day landing a man on the moon? It's a precursor to future human exploration. I think the way that we see exploration going, even in low Earth orbit, we see that we've moved on from country against country in a a race and we're doing it together in in the form of international cooperation. I think this technology and what we learn will be used to return a man to the moon. It will be used to return Europeans to the moon. Whether the Europeans will have built the lander itself that the humans are in, that's something to be decided in the future. European Lunar Lander Systems Engineer Richard Fasakali talking to Sue. Uh, Seth, what do you think of this South Pole mission? Yes, I notice it's the uh, Shackleton crater there on the South Pole. It's great, isn't it? It's not the Amundsen crater. Yeah, what's that about? Okay, well, in any case, (laughs) sure. Look, the South Pole may be one of the most interesting places on the moon. In fact, if you were to ask me what are the most interesting places on the moon, having not spent a whole lot of time there myself, I would say it's, it's, it's the poles. Or it's the backside. If you can get to the backside, that's great for, uh, uh, you know, astronomy, SETI, things like that. But the poles, the poles are particularly interesting because, after all, you can get sunlight all the time there. That's, uh, that's been mentioned. But also, you know, there's all this ice down there, apparently. And uh, ice means water. You have to, you know, defrost it. But doggone, it's a lot, uh, lot easier than bringing it from Earth. So that means that if you're ever going to have a lunar colony, that's a good place. So this is essentially looking for a resource to... to fuel a lunar colony, if you like. So you'd have the sunlight, you'd have the water, you could then have a base. Right, right. I mean, none of the moon is, you know, it's just not Florida, i got to say. But in a bad, hostile environment, those are the best places to go. People talk about the moon as a stepping stone to beyond, a stepping stone. It used to be moon, Mars and beyond. Are we now thinking that again? We seem to be, at least in this country. That's been certainly the the plan for a while here. Uh, More than a decade, people have said, first go to the moon. You know, that brings up an interesting point. Imagine we didn't have the moon. I mean, we could still be here despite what people say. I don't think the moon was absolutely essential to the evolution of of our uh, existence here. But if we didn't have the moon, would we have a space program? Because to go to Mars is a lot harder than going to the moon. And maybe we would never have done it. So maybe the fact that we have this nearby moon is actually a good thing from the standpoint of doing any space research. But it is true that the moon provides a base where you have some materials and so forth. That seems logical. On the other hand, 
if you land on the moon and then you say, now we're going to go to Mars from the moon, now you've got to get away from the moon. And that's not as hard as getting away from the Earth, obviously. But still, why go to that trouble? Why not just assemble whatever you need in orbit and then just blast off for wherever you want to go next? But the, can I just throw in yeah, a comment sure. there? But the moon, uh, the moon, Mars, and Beyond program was one which I believe was started by Bush. The idea was to send humans, put humans back on the moon and then go on to Mars and so forth. And there's a real debate in this country um, whether or not you should have human missions or robotic missions. I think that human missions obviously are more expensive. They're dangerous and so forth. I mean, these rovers were exciting. Exactly. If, If you have any doubt about this, go into any sixth grade classroom and ask the kids, how many of you would like to go to Mars? And every hand will go up. Then ask them, how many of you would like to be an engineer that designs a rover that goes to Mars? Some of the hands will go up. If you could have used a robot instead of Chris Columbus to discover the Americas, you know, maybe it would have been cheaper and certainly would have been safer, but it wouldn't have been the same. Well, thank you very much to my guests, Seth Sostak and Molly Bentley here at SETI and for the use of their studio and production expertise where you you press the record button. I did do that. You did do that. Thank you. Do check out their podcast, The Big Picture Science Radio Show and their Kickstarter page. The Space Boffins podcast is supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And Ben will be here in a fortnight with the Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back in a month with more from California. We'll also return to our series on the Gemini missions. You can, of course, find us on Twitter and Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you. I'm Richard Hollingham, and I'll leave you with my attempt to land the space shuttle. I'm in the shuttle simulator at NASA Ames, just south of San Francisco. My instructor is Carol Bo Bobko, who's landed two real space shuttles. OK, here we go. It's actually very tricky. You have to keep a diamond in the middle of a circle. You come in at such a steep angle. We're passing through 4,500 feet, 4,000. It's such a speed. I mean, really, it, this is nothing like a commercial airliner. Pre-flare next. Start looking at the runway. Bring the nose okay. up so that the yeah. velocity vector is in the diamond. Bring the nose up. Bring the nose up. Very good. Okay, now wait for about 185. And now put the nose down. Good. Okay, and applying the brakes now. And we're slowing, we're slowing down. We're slowing down, and we've come in on the runway. Yes, that's good. No, you did work very well. That was good. I've landed the space shuttle. That's, that's one of the highlights of my life. That's just thank you so much. That was fantastic. Botox Cosmetic. Botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.